the roof's just going to open right up. I thought it was good. I was looked up a couple of times. It could be. It could be tonight. It could be tonight. So, hey, I'm going to do a couple of giveaways. Um, the, uh, the music that was just running during the, uh, the video announcements is a, a group by, called uh, Need to Breathe, and that's called Let Us Love. And so, and I'm going to talk to you guys about that in just a second, right? Because that's right. All right, all right, all right. So, but I want to give, this is a, a $10 gift card. I want to give this to Tyler. Is Tyler over here? You can pass that back to him. I don't know if you've got Need to Breathe. But you need that. You need that when you go back to school. And I just was praying for you during the worship set. And I just felt like God put something on my heart for you to. He's he, he, if you've ever spent any time with the show, he's a, a young man that has character beyond his years. Is how you could describe this young man. And so you can clap for that. Yep. And during your young adult years, I just want to encourage you that the devil will come. He'll try to take your character because he knows your character fuels the voice of your influence. So you guard that character. You guard that character. So, hey, and I just want to give this to my friend Josh Peters who's visiting with us tonight. It's another gift card to iTunes. Come on, shout. Give it a shout out for Josh. So he's hanging out. He teaches at uh, Wave College. Wave College. And Cord, one of our very own, is in one of his classes. So if you want to advocate for Cord for him to get a better grade, you want to talk to this guy right here. So, so the young, these college young professionals, I rely on them to help keep me current with my music. Are you with me? And so just this, so I need a show of hands. How many college and young professionals list, knew about Need to Breathe? I just need to know by show of hands, yeah. And see, none of them have ever talked to me. And so I've got until the first weekend of September when we take communion again to get over my bitterness. And if I drop dead when I take communion, you'll know that I did not do a very good job. So I'm, I'm working through I was putting it on Instagram. I was like, where, where, where have you been? So if, if you've not heard them, you, you want the, I, don't, I call it an album still because I'm 47. So that's what I do. So you want the album with the horse with the circle on its eye and spend the extra few dollars for the deluxe edition, right? The deluxe version. I'm, I'm telling you, it'll change your life. Change your life. Okay. So speaking of music, you see how I did that? Nice little segue there, right? Speaking of music, so we were singing tonight that Jesus, your love, I, I, I've, not, I've never tasted anything sweeter than your love, right? Remember that line tonight? It's a little something like that. I would say except for this iced tea that I made yesterday. Could be. It could be a little bit sweeter. And so this is called idolatry, but the first step in getting rid of your idols is to confess them. And so this is one of mine right here. We call it iced tea in the South. Could I just set the record straight right now? There is no such thing as sweet tea and unsweet tea. When you get below the Mason-Dixon line, in order for it to be iced tea, it has sugar already in it, right? I, okay, where, I, there should be more applause than that, I'm just saying. And some of you might say, well, you can just, you cannot add sugar to tea. It will not melt. I don't worry, it will not. It is wrong. I'm just saying. It is wrong. It is wrong. This, so what I have here, this is the first batch that I've ever made in my life. This is my mother's secret recipe. I know. I know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some away. This, this is going to go to Malcolm because he's breaking his fast tonight, he was telling me. All right. I know. I know. I know. So, so don't, don't taste it yet because I'm, I'm building to something here. I'm going give, to give away a couple of those in just a minute too. So I'm going to do some of those to some first-time visitors. And, and, and when I get to that point, if you're deciding whether or not you qualify, this is the measure of whether or not you qualify to get one of these last four cups, is that you would rather drink water out of the hoof print of a mule on a farm than drink unsweetened tea. All right, so if that's you, I'm just saying, then you qualify. I know that narrowed the group, didn't it? Because I only have 
four cups. And so, so I'm going to give you my, my mother's secret recipe. You ready? I'm telling you this, it will ruin you for the ordinary for the rest of your life. It will even make you spit out hearty sweet tea. It's that good. It's, I'm just telling you, it's that good. So this, this right here is you take a gallon of, and I don't do any cooking. I don't even grill. I'm just, I'm, I'm a consumer in my house. I make no contribution to the food preparation. I help with the dishes. Sometimes I'm terrible. I hear there's a men's retreat coming in the fall. I'm going to that, hoping I can get my life together. So, so I decided instead of asking Vanessa to make this, I'm going to make this myself. And, and I just learned that big volumes of water, microwaves cannot boil that water. And I've tried. It does not work. So Vanessa said, you should, she was trying to help, right? Being a good, she just, you, maybe you should try using a pan on the stove. What are these things called pans? Right? So I get out this big pan, and I fill it with a gallon of water, and I'm just standing there, right? And Vanessa says, if you put a top on it, it might boil a little faster. It's like, oh, right? Cooking tips. So I put the top on it, bring the water, you got to bring the water to a boil. Don't just heat it up, you got to get it to a boil, to a boil. I was on the phone with my mom this week, she was giving me a, so for a gallon of boiling water, it's 12 tea bags. And it's Lipton or some other brand name, not great value, not this colander looking thing that something from the Greek Orthodox Church that belongs incense. They're called they're tea bags. Not the not the others, right? Not the stuff that looks like illegal drugs, right? Not that I would know what that looks like. I'm talking tea bags, 12 tea bags, 12, 12. And then what you do is you take a rubber band stretch it around the lips so that the tea bags can dangle in there. Are you with me? All right. I know. See, I'm, I know. I came up with that all by myself. Two cups of sugar. I know. Two cups. And it's rot your teeth granulated sugar. Not sugar in the raw, not all this other fancy stuff, right? You're in the South. It's sugar. Or sugar, as we called it growing up. There's no R. It's just a straight A on the back end. So you take two cups of sugar. It's already in here. You boil the boring water. You stir it slowly until all the sugar has dissolved. These steps are important. Then you put in your tea bags. You tuck the, the, the paper lips or whatever you call those under there to hold it in. And then you put and you walk away. You just walk away. You walk away. And you let that thing steep and brew. And I asked my mom, or we called her mama growing up, you know, how, how long? Sometimes in cooking, there's no time. She says, son, you, you let it steep until it's cool enough to put it in the refrigerator. How long is that? I don't know how long that is. So about every 30 minutes, I'd come in and I'd go, no, that's not good. That's not good. We went out to dinner with the Ruggieros last night. I came home, right? Oh, it's safe, right? You do not drink this tea. It goes into the refrigerator all night long and it rests and it brews, right? You take the bags out. Hey, another trip, you take a spoon and you push all the tea out of those tea bags, right? Right? Debbie's nodding her head. Am I getting the steps right? You push all that tea out of those tea bags. You throw the tea bags away, and what you have left here is something that will be at the marriage feast of the Lamb when we get to heaven for all the people that live below the Mason-Dixon line. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be there, and there will be no unsweetened tea at all because that's going to be in another place. All right, so... So who are, some, who are some visitors, like first, second, third time visitors that, that, that deserve one of these teas? Oh, I see, I see a couple of hands. I see Wendy pointing to somebody. 
I'm going to give one to this couple here to share. I'm telling you, it's going to change. It's, it's chilled also. All right, I have two more, right? I, was, I see Monica pointing to somebody. Who else? Where? Over here. Oh, there you go. Drummer, the guy on the drums tonight, is that you're pointing to? You need to be refreshed? Nice. Here you go. There you go. There you go. It's going to change your life, I'm telling you. The preaching's going to be okay, but this tea, I'm telling you, it's going to be good. I think I saw somebody over here lobbying for him. Was it this young man right here? Monica was advocating for you. I know. There you go. I know. And you might be asking, what is Fred going to do with the rest of this tea? I'm taking it home because it's mine. You make your own. Now you know the recipe. All right. So why, why am I talking about tea? Because every summer we pray, leading up to the summer, and we say, God, what do you want us to talk about for three months? Because sometimes it takes time for things to get inside of us to change us. You can't steep that tea in 20 minutes. Don't talk to me about instant tea. Don't talk to me about instant tea because there's nothing instant about real tea. It takes time. You have to steep. It has to brew. If you're going to alter the nature of this water, then you've got to be willing to put the time in to get what's here. And the same thing is with our hearts. And so every year we say, God, what do you want to steep us in? How do you want to change us? What are you going to brew us in every year? And Pastor Jamie and I, as we began to talk and pray, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was saying to us, I want you as a church to learn how to rescue more than you are. It needs to become a part of your DNA. It needs to be the heartbeat of every person, to be rescue-oriented, to be rescue-minded. And here we are in August. We're coming down the home stretch, and we want to taste different, look different, live different, act different, because we've spent three months together as a church in this Word. It's changing who we are. So we picked movie themes, right? Some of the greatest rescue films of all time. Aliens is our image theme tonight. If you've never seen this movie, it's not for the faint of heart. That's my disclaimer, right? We have a TV guardian at our house that works off the closed captioning, takes out all the, the language. If you don't have one of those, I would not recommend that you watch this movie, okay? My boys are probably not going to see this movie until they're in college, Claire, until she's 30, and then she has to watch it with me, maybe. I'm just saying. All right, okay. That's my disclaimer. I don't want anybody leaving going, it's family movie night. Let's get the movie that the pastor recommended, right? Oh, my. Right? Okay, so I didn't want that to happen. All right. Just don't want to. In space, no one can hear you scream. I'm just, that's a great tagline. All right. When my situation is desperate and my efforts are failing, an urgency surrounds me. I need to be rescued. Just to catch you up. Maybe August is all you're going to get to steep in this word with us. But we spent some time looking at Matthew 14. We're not going there tonight together, but this is just some review. 22 through 32, it's the powerful story of Peter walking on the water. And as he begins to sink, and he cries out to Jesus, and Jesus reaches out and grabs him and saves him. There are a few pictures in Scripture that give us a picture of our spiritual condition, that we are all sinking in the ocean of our humanity, and Jesus is the only one who can rescue us. 
We've looked at John 9, 4, and then again in John 12, 35 through 36, John 9, 4 has been our life verse for this whole series. The sense of urgency I see in Jesus should awaken me to the sense of urgency that I should have about my condition. You might say, hey, Fred, I get it. I understand. I'm a wreck. I understand. I'm seeking in an ocean of my humanity, and maybe one day I'm going to get around to getting some help. When we look at the life of Jesus, especially in texts like this, he says, hey, the night is coming. Time is short. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And we want to light a fire under your heart. If you were like me 23 years ago when I was running from God, there should be something inside of you that says, I don't have that much time left. And there should also be something inside of you that says, why should I be running from the one that can rescue me to begin with? And so for every weekend, we're just bringing a call to you. We're going to do it again at the end of the service. Although I think David hacked into my computer and read my notes and gave the call already at the worship wrap-up. I was like, come on, that is it. I'm working out of that same text. There's going to be a call for you tonight. Because, you know, I'm just tired of running from the one who can save me. Jeremiah 31, 15 got your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be turning through a bunch of texts tonight, but we're going to start here. This is just water, so don't be jealous. That sugar's not good for your voice when you're being loud. Come on. 3115, 3115. This is what the Lord says. Jeremiah's prophesying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Lord says. A cry is heard in Ramah. Deep anguish and bitter weeping. These are important words. Anguish and weeping are heavy enough by themselves, are they not? But Jeremiah said, no, I want you to understand. The anguish is going to be deep. The weeping is going to be bitter. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. Father, we just open up our hearts to you, just as David talked about at the end of that worship set. We lift our hands in a place of surrender as we are about ready to get into your word because we want your word to get into us, Holy Spirit, what you want to speak to us, what you want to do in us. Have your way in our lives tonight in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said amen. Amen. Jeremiah, we are a text church if you're visiting with us tonight. Can I just talk about that for a minute? We love the text. We dig into the text. We go deep into the text. And one of the reasons why that is is because the Bible says of itself that it's a living book. It's a living word. And we want to encourage you that if you're new to this journey, you need to invest in a good study Bible. If you don't know what that might be, then you see me after the service. We could talk some about that. You see this gentleman over here, Josh Peters. He's probably got a whole list that he could give you. And can I just say that when you begin to give your life to the study of God's word, you're not just investing in the revelation that you want to have today. You're investing in the revelation that you're going to have 10 years from now. I know things that God is showing me in God's Word today is because I started reading the Bible right out of the gate when I made a vow of devotion in December of 1990. You have to put your time in. It's this idea of steeping and brewing. You want God's Word to get in there and begin to ferment and begin to change and alter who you are. And so we give time to the text at this church because it's a foundation to our Christian existence. So, so, so what, what's, what's the context of this text? See, because when you're reading the Bible, you should be asking yourself some questions. 
if, if you're a task-oriented person like me, you have to be careful because you'll get caught up in just meeting the goal of reading everything that you're supposed to read. But your goal is to connect with God. Your goal is for the Holy Spirit to teach you and speak to you. And so you might just be two verses in. This happens to me, and I get frustrated, right? Because I got a goal. I got stuff that I want to do. I got things I want to check things off of my list, right? And so you might just be two verses in, and, and all of a sudden you're going, huh, I wonder what that means. Stop. Find out what that means. Google it, BibleGateway.com. Get some commentaries. There's all We would love to recommend some stuff to you. But take some time. So you might be reading in Jeremiah 31, 15. We're going to practice it tonight and say, huh, I wonder why they use Rachel's name. I wonder why they use Rama. What was that about? When was this even happening? And since you're asking that, I think maybe I'll answer some of those questions for you. Right? So the northern kingdom, right? Israel was divided. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. It had a civil war of sorts fell to the Assyrians around 722 B.C., but Jerusalem, that's part of the southern kingdom, they sailed strong. It wasn't time, but their time came. The Babylonians eventually conquered the Assyrians around 586 B.C., and, and the southern kingdom fell. And when the Babylonians came to town, they decided, we're going to take some people home with us. We're taking some of your children. We're taking some of your people. But they didn't just load them up right away. They would put them in internment camps. They would put them in cities, in holding cities. And they would hold them there for a time. And we don't have time to go into all of that. But they would herd them into these certain cities. They would be kept there for a time before they would be deported. And guess what one of those cities was? Ramah. It was a place of weeping. It was a place of bitter weeping. It was a place of deep anguish. These things that Jeremiah was talking about were real events and real things were happening. You can imagine if a foreign army came in and conquered this great country, God forbid, and, and occupied it and decided to take some of us to a foreign place and all of Hampton Roads became a place of waiting where people that were going to be taken away in this nation would be brought here and you'd be kicked out and sent somewhere else. And, and you can imagine the pain. Families were torn apart. They didn't just take families all together. It was a place of bitter weeping and deep anguish. You can imagine mothers and fathers with their children on the other side of that wall crying for mercy but none being given. This is the audience that Jeremiah speaks to. So when he talks about, when he talks about bitter weeping and deep anguish, those words still fell short for the pain. The siege of Jerusalem lasted for quite some time. People had resorted to cannibalism. There were people that were so malnourished at this moment in time that nothing could even save them. They were going to die no matter what. This is his audience. This is the group of people that he's been called to minister to. And so when he reaches for the name of Rachel, he's reaching for one of the mothers of Israel, right? Because Jacob had a couple of wives, Leah and Rachel, and from these two women came 12 sons, and these 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why you use 12 tea bags when you're making tea, because it's scriptural. I'm just throwing that in for extra. And, 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 and so these were the mothers of a nation. And they were crying because their sons and daughters were going away. That's the story of the town. I'm telling you, you dig, you study. It just causes God's word to begin to come alive. So many of us love Jeremiah 29 11. Probably one of the 
top five life verses that people pick. But we too often forget these words were spoken over a nation on their way into 70 years of captivity. I just have this picture of Jeremiah getting this word from God. This is what I want you to speak to the people. And Jeremiah is saying, I'm not saying that to them. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Jeremiah 29, 11. Listen to this. Many of you know it. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Does it ring a bell? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good. People are holding dead children in their hands, standing at the gates of city, crying, wondering if they're ever going to see their children. And here's the prophet standing on a soapbox saying to them, God has good plans for you. Can, can you imagine? Jeremiah's life was at risk so many times during his ministry because the word that was brought was just impossible to hear. Impossible. Their plans for the good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope, right? People, if, I'd be in that crowd. I'd be like, shut up already. Is it just me? How can that word be brought to a people that are enduring that kind of pain? This is the text that's given to us, the story and the ministry of the life of Jeremiah. And God is saying, I just want you to know that this circumstance does not define my relationship for, with you. There is purpose in this pain. There is purpose in this suffering. I know it's hard to see, but I want you to know that I always have your best interest at heart, even when your circumstances say to the contrary. And not only that, as we've talked about before, God is writing a prophetic story of the coming of Christ. And there are times in the story where people were asked to pay a great price for the story of the coming of Christ to be told. And so there's a great prophecy, not just coming from the life of Jeremiah. There's a great prophecy coming out of this nation to the world. The cry of Ramah. See, this idea of the cry of Ramah wasn't just a, a cry of bitter weeping and deep anguish uh, some 500 years before the birth of Christ that was real, but there was another moment in history. There was another moment in history where the, the writers of the New Testament on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired Jeremiah to write and put these words in play, the same God, the sovereign God that's orchestrating these events, put those things all in place so that something else that was about to happen was being foretold by this journey and by this story. It's been about 20 to 30 years since Jesus' resurrection. Matthew, one of the apostles, he's one of the 12. There's that number again. We just can't get away from it. God's saying to him, Matthew, it's time for you to tell your story. It's time. God, people don't want to hear my story. I was a traitor to my people. I, was a, I worked for the Romans. God, God, it's time, Matthew, to tell your story. I'm going to give you the words to say. You've got to write it down. It's not going to be easy. We're going to write this letter, right? He's just thinking, I'm just writing. He has no idea that one day this letter he writes is going to be canonized and be held in the same esteem of the Jewish scriptures that they loved and cherished so deeply. But God's saying, Matthew, you've got a calling. You've got a purpose. You've got something to do. Tell your story. Matthew 2. 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, Joseph. 
flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. I'm going to 18. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. They stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Bitter weeping, deep anguish. Based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. The child with 36 years to live is being hunted. Heavily armed soldiers from the capital city of Jerusalem are marching to this small town intent on finding and killing the baby boy. They are a mixed race group of foreign mercenaries from Greece and Gaul and Syria. The child's name unknown to them is Jesus. And his only crime is that some believe he will be the next king of the Jewish people. The current monarch, a half-dying, half-Jewish, half-Arab despot named Herod, is so intent on ensuring the baby's death that his army has been ordered to murder every, every male child the age of two years and younger in Bethlehem. None of the soldiers knows what the child's mother and father look like or the price, precise location of his home, thus the need to kill every one. This alone will guarantee the extermination of the potential king. The soldiers are well aware of Herod's notorious cruelty and his penchant for killing anyone who would try to threaten his throne. But there is no moral debate about the right or wrong of slaughtering infants. But the soldiers, they don't question their order. There's no doubt the nerve that they need to bring to rip screaming children from their mother's arms and carry out the execution. When the time comes, they will follow the orders, they will do their jobs, or they will risk themselves being immediately killed for insubordination. The sword's blade is how they plan to dispatch these babies. It's graphic. All soldiers are armed with the Judean version of the razor-sharp sword preferred by the Roman legions, and they wear the weapon attached to their waist. Some of the children were murdered with this sword, some were strangled, and some were thrown en masse over a nearby cliff outside the city. The cause of death is not important. What matters most is one simple fact. The king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, or not, the infant must die. It's in the Bible real stuff. It's real pain. It's bitter weeping. It's deep anguish. It happened in 586 BC when, when, when children and families were torn apart. It happens again. It happens again here in the, in the early first century when Jesus is just a child and children are being slaughtered. Have you ever just stopped to ask the question, why didn't God warn some more families? I ask that question all the time. Are you with me here? I mean, God sends an angel to this one family. He sends an angel. Wake up, Joseph. You can't stay here. Your child is at risk. Guess what? Other families, their children were at risk. No angel came for them. Did, she didn't have time. He had somewhere else to be. 
He couldn't knock on a couple of other doors on his way out. He couldn't have just shouted, even if he wasn't supposed to, just so maybe some others could be saved. Nothing, no warning, no help, even though God knew every one of those children were going to be slaughtered in a brutal way. Can, can you imagine? Why, why would he do that? Jesus got away. Their family was safe. There was advance warning that came to them. Where's Jeremiah 31, 16 for them? Where is it? Listen to this, right? Matthew is brave enough to reach there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Jeremiah 31, but the, his audience, the people that were going to be reading this, they knew that, that, that this, this, this text would point them back to the whole chapter. Listen to what 16 says. But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope. For your future, says the Lord, your children will come again to their own land. Not these children. Not these children. That was part of the hope of Jeremiah's prophecy that one day, after 70 years, that they would come back, right? They would come back. They would rebuild the city families. There was a hope that there could be a reunion. There's no hope for these families. They'll be reunited in heaven, but nothing here. Nothing here, this side of eternity. It's brutal. It's raw. It's hard. It gives us pause. If it doesn't give you pause, you should check because I think you're dying. You don't have a heart. You don't have a heartbeat. God is a loving God. He, that's that not how he describes himself to us. Merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love and truth, but yet here he could have helped, he could have rescued, and he didn't. So, so let me ask you this question. Jesus grows up. He begins his ministry. He ends up back in Bethlehem. He wants to preach. Somebody comes up to him and says, where are you from? I'm from here. Oh, really? How old are you? I'm 30. Really? Because there's no other boys who were 30 from here. You know why? Because they're all dead. How did you escape that? Are you, just me? Who wants to sit in here? Because now they're connecting the dots. You got away. Maybe he tells the story. God spoke to my family. Oh, really? He didn't speak to my family. Let me show you the grave where he's buried. You with me? There's weighty stuff in God's word. Heavy questions that we should be asking. We should live our lives like Jacob wrestling with God. We might end up walking with a limp, but that's okay. Sometimes you're going to pay a price for the things that God wants to speak to your heart. There's Jesus going back. I just have to wonder if there wasn't a moment before Jesus stepped back into that city to teach for the first time if he did not think to himself, this is going to be hard today. This is not going to be easy. There are people here with real pain, but yet he went anyways. There is a cry of Rama. But this cry, it's a voice to us today. It was a cry 2,000 years ago. It's a voice for us today. In the same way that Jeremiah and what was happening at the fall to the Babylonians was prophetic and what was to come in the day and the time of Jesus, what happened in the day and time of Jesus is prophetic for what God is trying to teach us 
today. The cry is a voice. There's times where God walks us through seasons of crying because he's still writing a story, and he's writing a story with you, and he's writing a story with me, and sometimes that story has pain. Sometimes that story has suffering. Sometimes that story, as we're going to talk about in just a couple of minutes, it involves something called a cross. So back when my young adult days, I call it my BC days, my before Christ days. I was a bartender, graduated from college with a degree in business economics and became a bartender. My parents were so happy. They were so happy. And so I'm working at this restaurant in downtown Richmond. And so the, the, the bar is open into the early hours of the morning. Obviously, the restaurant closes beforehand, but everything's in the, in the same building. It's a five-star restaurant. They've got really nice food in the kitchen, and the kitchen is always unlocked, which is a great thing for the bar staff because we would go in there and do some taste testing and some of the food, and we were just, you know, doing our part because we had such a servant's heart. And so we would get off work, and we'd go up there, and I would always look for the grinder. The grinder was this sandwich. It was like an Italian sub, and I don't know everything else that the chef did to it, but it was something miraculous, and it had these jalapenos in it, and, and, and it, had, it, it came on like a French baguette that was kind of crusty on the outside and a little bit chewy, and you would toast that thing. The sandwich came out hot. I know you're hungry, right? It's, it's just not, it's, but I'm going to keep going. So, so, it's, so I would, they would wrap it in cellophane to keep it fresh, and they would keep it frizzed, and they would have these huge ovens like pizza ovens. They would put it on like the thing, would slide it in there, and it would only have to be in there for about two and a half seconds before it would just be so hot and then you would take it out and it would burn all the skin off the roof of your mouth in your first bite but you did it anyways because you know you had some iced tea that you could drink to wash it down and so and so I, I would so oftentimes I would borrow one of these sandwiches late at night and I would just kind of tuck it into my arm as I was walking back to my my car on the streets in Chaco, Chaco Slip and there's nobody there and so I've got the sandwich and and so I walk by and I, there's a homeless man in a doorway and, and I don't have this real experience with God speaking to me, but I know it was him now looking back, but I, had, I thought it was my thought, and so I had this thought of, hey, you should put that sandwich right next to that homeless man, so because when he wakes up, how awesome would that be? And, and this is what I said, he can get his own sandwich, this is mine. And I just kept walking. I didn't care. I didn't care. I was not a nice person. I'm a little nicer today, a little nicer. But why is that? Because our humanity despises a cross. We don't like it. We like for it to be easy. That's why Jesus said there's the broad way, there's the narrow way. More people choose the broad way because it's easy. This way, it's hard. You're going to choose to go there because the nature of our humanity, we eschew the sacrifice. We despise the price. We don't like the cost that is pressed upon us. The very nature of our humanity says, I want it easy and I want it free. And so now what do I do? I'm just, I mean, I do now every time when that happens, I, can, I give the sandwich away now. I do, I do, but I still don't always like it. Sometimes your character kicks in and you say, I'm going to do it because I know it's right. But can I just tell you, even after, and my, this is my, a big year for me, right? Because I'm tipping the scales. I had 23 years in as a pagan and then 23 years in as a passionate follower of Christ. I'm 47. This is my first year where I'm tipping the scale on the other side. Come on. Even now, even now, even now, when God speaks to me like that, something inside of me says, oh, we do not want to do this, Trey. Because when the Spirit of God comes in, humanity does not go away. We have power over humanity. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But it's still there. It is still a war going in inside of us. Hopefully character kicks in. We do the right thing. But something inside of us still says, I don't want it to be hard. I want it to be 
easy. Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16. Oh, I love this text. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. He's saying, hey, it's on you. It's going to be your fault. It's your decision. But if, if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What, what do you benefit, he says, if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worse? Wor is anything worth more than your soul? Is what's worth more than you? Now, in some Bibles, which are wrong, there's a subheading that drops in here as if Jesus changes the subject. I'm telling you tonight, Jesus is not changing the subject. I'm telling you tonight, he's about ready to make his biggest point. Not all commentary agrees. Some do, but I'm just telling you, this is the one that I embrace. You decide for yourself. But thankfully, my Bible, because it's truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not have a heading. He keeps going. It's the same thought. He's building to something. We, we think he's already built his point because that's the one we've heard taught the most. What is a prophet of man to gain the whole world yet lose his own soul? That's the one we've learned is the climax. The climax is yet to come. So for the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. We've talked about that in this series. Here it comes. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so many people teach and offer this text as if God is talking about a physical death. He's not talking about a physical death. He's talking about the dying to the self. He's just been teaching on it. It's right there. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming back. One day I'm coming back. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to raise myself to life. And one day I'm coming back. And in that moment with the angels and all of God's glory, I'm going to come. And there are going to be people in that moment of judgment if they've already died. Or if those that are of the generation of the living, when I come, I am telling you now, there is going to be deep anguish and bitter weeping because some of you refused to die to yourself. He's saying, I'm telling you right now, disciples, to your face that some of you are going to say, I'm not going to do it. This dying, this dying to myself, this suffering in my humanity, I'm just, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to taste of that death. I don't want to have anything to do with that flavor on the palate of my soul. I want it to be easy, and I want it to be free. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to know right now, don't be that person. Because there's going to come a day where you have to give an account for your life. Don't be that person that has regret, that fills them up because you refuse to die to yourself for the call that you were supposed to live. I'm not saying that this means that, that only people that die to themselves all the time aren't going to heaven. Going to heaven is based on whether or not you make a vow of devotion to Christ. But I think there's going to be a lot of, of, of myself included, we're going to experience some regret when we get there because God's going to show us the life that we lived and we're going to, 
see our missed opportunities. And I'm just, as a church, let's make them as few as we can. Can we just say that? We're not going to get rid of them because we're not ever going to be perfect, but let's get that list smaller. The cup of suffering, a price that is paid, it's part of the package. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love Galatians 2.20. I love this text, but can we just say when Paul wrote this, he never intended it to mean that means that there's no more crosses for us to carry. We, we're not ever going to have to die on that cross because that was his cross to redeem the world. But it doesn't mean that there's not still a cross, sometimes lots of crosses that we have to carry because Jesus himself said so. There's times in life where we pay a price. The voice of Rama says to you and it says to me, rescuing others demands a price. It is hard sometimes to be willing to reach people. I, I still fail at it. I, I fail at it all the time. Fail at it all the time. Failed at it this week. Failed at it this week. Nate and I were at a football game and went up to see the Skins play the Patriots and there were some young adults behind us. I wanted to punch them in the mouth. And so did Nate. And we almost did. It would have been ugly. Your pastor arrested, posting bail. Just vulgar, just talking. I can't, I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you the conversation. We were just, just, right? But what should be my response? My response should be, this is, this is really hard. That should be the moment I know that I should really try. Romans, Romans 9, 30 through 33 talks about this stone that was in the path for the Jewish people, and they kept stumbling over it. What's that stone? That stone are the moments where we have to pay a price. And the nation stumbled. You read the story for yourself. All throughout the Old Testament, every time it was hard, they stumbled. Those hard stones are there to make us stronger, to climb to the top so our voice gets louder when it's time for us to step into the moments like that and share and reach people even when it's hard. We shouldn't say because it's hard, I'm not going to do it. We should say because it's going to be so hard, it's going to be so good. But I stumble, I stumble, I fell, right? I'm thinking to myself, oh, if they are, if, if they are season ticket holders and they're here when I have my daughter here, I'm punching everyone right in the mouth, right? I'm doing it. But now I know, right? I, I can't. I'm taking reach cards, right? Handing them out. Putting it in their beers. Sticking in their sunglasses that they're thinking they're so cool. Wearing at nighttime. Just tucking it right down in here and saying, Jesus loves you. Claire, you're going to learn some new words today, sweetie. It's going to be all right. Are you going to stumble at the rock? Or are you going to climb on that rock? Are you going to stumble at that rock? Are you going to get on that rock so it carries your voice farther? It makes your spiritual legs stronger? There are rocks on the road, people. Jesus left that part out. Not only is it narrow, there's mountains. And what makes it narrow? There's no way around it. You either fall or you climb over. And there's mountains that are going to stand in our way. There's mountains that stand in our way. There's mountains that stand in your way. You got to, what's your price? I, I think I doubt in my price. I, I don't always do a good job in sharing with people. I'm a naturally introverted person. 
people, people who are, are teachers are often naturally introverted people because for me, this is like a conversation with one person and you don't get to say anything. So it's a lot easier for me, right? For introverted people. It's hard, it's, where it's hard for me is after the service in the crowd and, 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 and you learn to overcome those things. But my natural location is I just want to find one person and talk to him for 30 minutes and then go home and then I would be happy. Right? Vanessa is, I'm going to talk to every person in here, and this is the last thing that I do, and it's going to be awesome, right? So we're going to like a wedding or a wedding reception. I just say, honey, I'll see you after, because you're going to find me on the side, having a deep, meaningful conversation with somebody, and what's deep and meaningful for her, this is how God's wired her, I'm talking to everyone. And the people I don't know, you're going to get to meet me tonight. <laughs> Woo! Let's go. On three. My, this is my price. This is my price. Why struggle, I know, oftentimes in fall, in moments of sharing. This is my price that I don't want to pay. I do not want to be perceived as the Christian who has poor social boundaries. I've wrestled with it for so long. It's like I had an epiphany this week. Because I know, I don't, I, don't, I'm not a, I don't have the fear of man. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not really overly concerned about what other people think. And sometimes that gets me in trouble. And maybe I need to work on that a little bit more. But, but that's not my thing, right? I, I know sometimes I'm task-oriented. I've talked about that. But, and I know that's part of my challenge and uh, my personality, being a naturally introverted person. But I felt like I really dialed it in this week. I just don't want to be that person. I don't want to walk away from one of those moments and, 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 and people say, why do Christians, why do they have such poor social boundaries? Could you just shut up already, right? I, I don't want to be that person. And I know now that the devil comes in and he's whispering that up. Don't, you don't want to be that person, Greg. And, and you know what? We don't want to be those people. We do need to have social boundaries. We do need to engage people in conversations in a way that's respectful, that asks them questions. I, I say now, hey, could I give you a card to my church? Right? You, you, you've got to re be respectful for people. But what I know now is that I can't let that as permission when it's when it's easy, it's easy. We went out to dinner last night. The waiter, he's friendly. He's talking. He's telling his story. And I'm thinking to myself, even now, even I can talk about God in this situation, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is going to be good. And God says, you don't get any credit for this. He's basically talking to you about God. You're just catching up. You got nothing. What's your, what's your price? Your price might not be my price. Your price might be fear of man. Your price might be, well, I might get into a conversation and, and over my head and I don't know what to say. Your price meet might be that you don't care. Your price might be like my price sometimes where it's not about social boundaries anymore. It's you're just this irritate the snot out of you. And maybe there's a part of you that's saying, you know what, I'm not sure I want them to be in heaven with me because I really don't like them. <laughs> what's, your, what's your price? What's the price that you do not want to pay? Because I'm telling you, that's the price that God's going to ask you to pay. That's the stone he's put in your road. And we can decide now whether we're going to get over top of that stone or whether or not we're going to stumble. I invite the worship team to come back up. I know I'm off the clock a little bit. I was last week too, but I haven't preached in a month, so that's just on you. Romans 6. Romans 6. I'm just going to switch gears on you a little bit. Can I do that? See how I did that? I asked, even though I'm not going to. Even if you ask me to, it's just my way of being nice. So let's go back to David Godwin bringing that prophetic word at the end of the worship set. Can we just go back there? Just, just go there with me. Romans 6, verse 5. I'm going down to 14. Since we have been united with him in his death, we, all, we will also be raised to life as he was. 
We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Sin is powerful. And since we died with Christ, we know we also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. You know you're really preaching when you start pointing at people. Right? But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Verse 12, here it comes. Do not, do not, it's your choice. If you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, it's in us. And so Paul says, stop it. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires, just stop. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. You're free. You're free. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And then if you keep reading, we get down to this powerful verse that if you spent 14 seconds in a Baptist church, you know it, Romans. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says to you, Jesus says to you, we say to you tonight, the City Life Church, choose and choose life. Just stop. Stand with, no, no, actually don't stand. We're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. If you're here, this is going to take some courage, but we like courage here at the City Life Church. If you're here tonight and you would be so bold to say, Fred, sometimes, and, and hey, this is, it might, this might be true of you, but it might not be your moment to stand. Is that with me? I'm just saying if God's doing something in you, I want these people to stand. It might not be all of you, but if something inside of you, if you would say, when David was talking earlier about sometimes struggling, about you might have your hands lifted up in the worship set, but, but on the inside you've got clenched fists because you know there's some things in your life that you just don't want to let go of, that you know God is saying you have got to lay that thing down. You've got to stop this. You've got to let that grudge go, whatever it is. I'm just saying, for those people, I'm going to invite you to stand because I just want to pray of you in this moment. If there's something inside of you that you say, hey, I know there's something that masters me at times, like I shared with you in my own journey tonight, and you know right now that God is saying, hey, that moment of deliverance that David spoke of, I want it. I want to be free. I'm just going to stand where you are. We're not going to linger in this moment, but I know there's some people. It might not be everybody. It might not be everybody. And what I want to say to you is that sometimes you've got to get aggressive with your problems. Sometimes you've got to be, you've got to bring intensity to your sin. And, and what I want, I want to teach you a phrase tonight. This is a phrase that I use. 
And that when you're when a temptation from your past is coming to you, whether it's lifestyle related, or whether or not it's something of the heart, like emotional hurt or pain or a grudge or an offense, this is what I want to teach you the phrase. You say to that thing as if it's a person, get the hell out of my life because that's where you came from and that's where you need to go back to because I am heaven bound and there is no room in my life for anything that did not come from the Father. And you might say, well, that sounds hard. And what I'm saying to you is it is hard and it's okay to get intense. It's okay to maybe cross that bound. I'm not talking about talking to your children that way, but in the privacy of your own life, you got to get mean to sin because it wants to master you. So I pray over every person that's standing here right now. In Jesus' name, come on, God. Let something supernatural begin to rise up inside of them. A holy righteousness, a, a courage, even a righteous indignation and anger so that later on tonight when that temptation comes, that they're going to stand up. They're going to get in its face. They're going to say, there's no place for you in my life anymore. I'm going to overcome. I'm going to climb the rock. I'm not going to keep stumbling. Sin, you are not my master. I have a master, and it's not you. In Jesus' name, come on. In Jesus' name, let the Holy Spirit even now begin to set people free. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody sit together. Amen. Stand with me. Let's worship together. You provide the fire. And I'll provide the sacrifice. If you provide the spirit, yeah, and I will open up inside. Fill me up, God. Fill me up, God. Fill me up, God. Fill me up. Run over, I wanna run over 
to be 